Welcome to the third episode of our podcast mini-series, The State of U.S. International Applications. It's a companion piece to our latest ebook, um, and I'm interviewing a series of experts from around BridgeU on what's driving international students' U.S. application decisions and how this affects international higher education across the U.S. as a whole. My guest for this episode boasts over 15 years of experience in international student admissions and has worked in international admissions departments across the USA, from Indiana to New York, encompassing liberal arts colleges, selective private colleges, and flagship public universities. Most recently, Jen Matthews was Director of International Admissions at Syracuse University before joining BridgeU as our new Head of Enrollment Services. So hi, Jen. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Thanks, James. I'm excited to be here. Um. So announcement for kind of everyone who's listening to this really, obviously you are the um, head of a, probably a shiny, what I'd call a shiny new department at Bridgeview, um, <laughs> which is enrollment, enrollment services. Um, it's only about a month old, but bef so before we dive into talking about um, the report and your, your thoughts on that more generally, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about enrollment services, what it is, um, and just, you know, how, how you see it growing in the next couple of months? Yeah, Absolutely. It's a very exciting opportunity uh, for me. So essentially, we realized that, you know, our university partnerships um, were growing substantially and quickly. Um, so the number of partners that we are supporting at BridgeU and on the university side of the business has, has been expanding. And so we really needed somebody to have, well, we needed a whole actually team, not just one person to be able to manage those relationships and the partner's content. There's a lot of content that goes into a university partnership um, at BridgeU because we do in-app um, you know, promotion and marketing for our university partners. So there was really a need for a team that sat between you know, the, your team, which is the, the marketing team and communications team, um, as well as the customer success team and um, who work with our university partners directly and also the product team, the people who are building and updating and um, creating at all times the actual BridgeU platform that students and counselors are using to do their application process. So um, that's really where our team sits is between product and which is the team that's doing all of the app stuff um, and, and these other parts of the business that are facilitating the university partners themselves. So that's where we sit. We are managing our partner campaigns. Um, and so we've been doing a lot of work to to do some exciting new opportunities with our university partners, get really creative with the kinds of content we're going to be able to show students and counselors in the platform. Um, so it's been a really exciting and fun uh, project to be a part of and process. And I'm delighted that they asked me to be a part of it. Yeah, I have to say I'm really excited about the team as well. And um, from obviously I've spoken to you um, outside of this podcast about some of the things that you've got planned for it. And it all sounds really exciting. And is it is it all right to ask you just another sort of quick follow-up question about that? So sure. I would be fair to say that I think in the US, the term enrollment service is a little bit more of an established term, but I don't actually know if it's used as much in the UK and other some of the other countries in which Bridgie operates. So um like why do you feel why do you feel that like enrollment services is so important, especially now in the sort of like post-COVID like world? Like in a more, I'm not maybe not just talking about Bridge's enrollment services team, I'm talking more generally about, you know, um the needs of just higher education institutions around the world and, and how they and how they should um, think about how they recruit students in the future. Sure. I actually think this is a really important distinction because a lot of people, when they talk about 
supporting international recruitment or admissions, they're really talking about the top of the funnel, right? The top of the admissions funnel. So uh, driving up leads um, for universities to do direct outreach to, um, you know, doing, uh, connecting students at a very top level introductory way. And to me, when you talk about enrollment services, you're really talking about full funnel support, right? So you're, what you're driving toward is not just feeding names of students into the top of a university's um, recruitment funnel, but rather helping drive them all the way through to enrollment itself. So the student who's, you know, sends their deposit in, um, at, you know, on May 1 or before May 1, and then actually shows up on campus in the fall. So to me, that's the biggest distinction is that we're trying to not just affect the top of the recruitment funnel, um, but also really help facilitate, um, you know, activities all the way through the point of yield um, and yield and enrollment. So to me, that's the distinction. Yeah. And I think, I think what's also interesting is that if you were to, you know, speak to either the two previous guests that we had on this podcast, you know, they talk a lot about, especially Abby, our first guest, who, as you know, obviously writes a lot of our international student facing content. Um, it, she, she, she spoke a lot about how there are so many barriers to admission now for um, mm -hmm. international students, because that decision-making process is so much more complex and so much more uncertain. And I, I think it's interesting that I, 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 my, my knowledge of the enrollment services, um, special specialisms in, in the U S are very much like what I know about the domestic one, but I, but maybe we can get into this as the, uh, as we continue this conversation. It, it's how it works in international context, I think is still, um, is there still a lot to, there's a still kind of a lot that's quite uncertain. Does, does that kind of make sense? Yes, absolutely. I would agree with that. Um, I think that it's actually, you know, if we, I know that, um, I'm maybe jumping, jumping ahead a little bit here, but I recently attended NAFSA and one of the big takeaways, I think from that conference and the conversations there um, was really about this, about uncertainty. And I, I, I don't know if you, do you read Karen Fisher's uh, newsletter, Latitudes? Some weeks I do. Yeah. When, when I, yeah. I, thanks to you, I've got about like four or five that I'm trying to keep on top of now, but yeah, <laughs> I, I do. I do. I follow her on Twitter as well. She's, I, I think her, her kind of just her, her advocacy for the whole industry is, is something I'm, I'm a big admirer of. Oh, absolutely. I think she's amazing. Um, but she actually had published this week's newsletter um, and and she had sort of a section on reflections from NAFSA and, and actually uncertainty, I think was the number one thing she had talked about. That was the hot topic of conversation. And I think that's true. Um, you know, it's been an interesting year and I know we're going to talk more about specific trends in a bit, but one of the thoughts that I think has been on my mind quite a bit is that we've been hearing from lots of people, both partners and non-partners um, or prospective partners that, you know, this actually turned out to be quite a banner year for a lot of institutions. You know, they had really strong enrollment, including internationally, which I think was a bit of a surprise to people given where we've been emerging from. Um, however, it comes with a lot of questions about who is actually still going to be able to show up on campus in the fall. You know, we've seen these continuing waves of COVID outbreaks, um, you know, in the China and China in particular, which as you, as we, I know we will be talking about, but China is such a major player in the U S market. And, you know, they've been shutting down repeatedly anytime there's been an outbreak and not allowing people to really travel um, either to or from China. And that makes a lot of uncertainty about who is going to be able to show up on campus in the fall. 
Um, and, you know, and I think that there's also a lot of uncertainty about, about timelines, because even though yield was really strong in, you know, in May and June, there's questions I think about what happens when countries like the UK may be sending out, you know, later admission offers, are they going to melt students later than normal? I mean, there's just a lot of questions I think that we don't know the answer to at the moment, um, that I think have really come out of of all of this. Um, so even though yield was really strong, and I think that's fantastic news for people, it, it is, I think it still remains to be seen how that's going to play out in the long term. So it's almost like what we're talking about here. And, and actually, to be fair, I think this is a trend that's not just happening in higher education, it's happening in, in, in many industries oh, yeah. that are trying to, you know, emerge from, from this pandemic. But Absolutely. it's also that just that thing of like, we know we're going to have a recovery, but the question is, well, are we going to have a sustainable recovery? And this is always, you know, with the, both the US and UK governments, for example, have tried this uh, slogan, build back better. And I feel like in both cases, um, that's the reality is it's a lot harder than that. And actually, I, I think in, if we put that in the higher education context, what I find quite interesting is that, you know, um, I seem to, I feel like, I don't know about you, but the amount of column inches I read during the pandemic about is like, when this is over, we need to really rethink how we do things. And, and now yep. it's happening and you, and you, and you do find yourself questioning to what extent are we ready to rethink things differently? How would you, how would you feel? How do you feel about that sort of statement? I completely agree. Um, I think that higher ed in general is really slow to change. And what was interesting about being an admissions officer during the pandemic, um, especially in the early part of it was, you know, we did have to pivot very, very quickly in a way that universities are just not prepared to do. <laughs> um, and so things, you know, that normally would take, I don't know, 18 months, you know, we had to come up with in a couple of weeks and it was, it was a very interesting exercise, but I also think that once things started to open back up again, you know, I saw people returning very much to previous practices um, after a lot of discussion about how we really need to change things in the future. And it was, I think it, it was a little bit of a source of frustration um, for me and I know for a lot of other people, but also somewhat unsurprising <laughs> um, having, you know, worked in higher ed for as long as I did. I think that that it's not totally unexpected that people sort of fall back into a comfort zone, but um yeah, it was an interesting time. Can you can you give me an example of what you of, of maybe one example would do of of just yeah how you've seen those the, the, um, those instances of people slipping back into a comfort zone or maybe just being unwilling to challenge a preconception they might have had but before the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of a lot of the conversations around things like campus visitation. Um, you know, obviously during the pandemic, a lot of universities couldn't host visitors on their campuses in order to keep their current students who were there, you know, safe and healthy along with the staff and the faculty. Um, and there was a lot of discussion during that time about our industry can rethink, you know, how we do campus visitation. You know, is it is it a tour? What do those tours look like? You know, what messaging are we giving when we give a tour? Um, you know, what are the focus areas? What are the concerns? And, you know, and, and there were a lot of ideas, a lot of interesting ideas that came up during that time that, you know, but, but in reality, when it came time to start hosting people on campus again, you know, we kind of ended up sliding right back into what we had done before. 
Um, and I guess maybe there's this idea that if it's, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it, I guess. <laughs> um, but I, this is a generation of students that we're dealing with that went through something very traumatic. Um, you know, their high school experience was very different than anyone that we had worked with before. And I do wonder, you know, how much of that was a response to students and families craving normalcy or what the perception of normalcy and how much of it was falling back into their comfort zone, like the university is falling back into their comfort zone. You know what I mean? So I guess, I guess it was just sort of, to me, it was the, it was the easy solution. And instead of thinking about the broader opportunities to change things, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I, and I think, um, I've noticed a couple of examples of that, just in terms of the fact that, you know, obviously we, we, we bridge you as a business that, that faces both ways, essentially, obviously we, we have, we work mm -hmm. with universities, but we also work with international schools and, right, of course. um, and, if, and I think one of the things that, that came up in the previous episode of this was, um, Prane, who works in Southeast Asia is, is our yeah. sort of sales manager there. He was talking a lot about, um, just to some of the ways that, um, you know, the, the way the U.S. application system is perceived, um, it, it has it has a sort of it has a legacy reputation. You know, because I, I think this is this is how I phrased it in the, in the last interview with him. You know, everyone knows when the common app prompts open. Everyone knows when early decision is. Everyone knows when regular decision is. Yeah. Um, but there are this, this and we and obviously in this report that we published, there are lots of councils who express frustration with the way the US system works and they and there's mm -hmm. a there's a frustration that's sort of like boiling over into does it really have to keep working like this um right. and also you know coming back to that domestic versus international piece you know I, I understand that the that there's almost saying like I understand that the US has these policies for its domestic students but why can't it make some more concessions for international students and I think if I was to pick one theme that's kind of run through all of the episodes of this of all the three interviewers so so far I think I think it would probably be that makes total sense to me. I mean, I, I agree. Um, you know, and I, and there's a lot of discussion, I actually, um, I know we're going to be talking about the report in more detail, but I think that there's a lot of questions from counselors about why universities are not super transparent about certain things. Um, but I think that frustration, like you said, is, is really coming to a head because now, people are not only dealing with more systems that students are applying to. And, you know, there's a lot of information to keep a track of, but there's also just, this is a different generation that's used to direct communication. And, you know, and, and so being a bit cagey about information, I think is, is maybe a little bit frustrating to people for understandable reasons. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and I think, um, a bit, a bit, but it was, it, you know, it was interesting as well how that, 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 that feeling wasn't universal, right? I think that's also important to say. And, and again, you and I yes. discussed this, discussed this as the, as, a, as yeah. I was writing the report, you know, we, we were quite, I think you were, we were both quite interested to discover that in Latin America, they felt that their relationship with international admissions teams was very good, you know, you know, mm -hmm. and then actually, I think, I think one of our counselors in Africa as well, in, in um, Malawi, she'd said that actually, you know, she was quite happy with the way that US universities engage with so she found them really helpful and approachable. It was interesting that, you know, in, in, in Europe and in Asia, 
um, slightly, should we say, more developed markets, it seemed to be that, that more frustration coming up. But again, I think I remember saying to you at the time, you, you don't want to put people into buckets or, or say that because they're from this region, they, they will feel this way. But And I think I that probably just shows why, you know, as we've been saying, US universities, college, college admissions teams, they need to take this really, really hyper-localized approach to things. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. Um, could we turn to the report then? Because of course, as I said, you know, I've mentioned this a couple of times, you, you've, you helped me sort of write it, collate it, you know, we, we were having some great discussions as it, as it was being produced. Um, so, you know, as a, as a former admissions officer yourself, like what for you this year were the most like, interesting or surprising or, or maybe not surprising findings, you know, did, 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 was, was everything in there almost exactly what you predicted sort of like having, having just come from Syracuse or. <laughs> Um, I mean, yes and no. I think the biggest, there was a lot of the data. Okay. Let me, let me rewind a bit. Um, the data itself did not terribly surprise me. Um, especially when I know you and I had talked quite a bit as you were conceptualizing the, the whole trajectory of the story this year. And and one of the things that we talked about was this idea of taking China and India out of the mix and looking at what happens with with that afterwards and i can't say that i was surprised necessarily that it that it changed things quite quite drastically in terms of the behavior um i think that was to be expected in my opinion but the things that did surprise me were really looking at the regions of the us where there was interest so there was a lot of growth in the midwest which i know was a highlight of the report um, you know, particularly in Illinois and in Minnesota. And not that, not that, I mean, I have a great love of the Midwest. I actually just relocated back to my home state of Indiana. So like shout yeah. out to the West. Um, <laughs> but it, but it was a little bit of a surprise to me how much those specific regions grew from an international school sector perspective. Um, and, you know, and I don't know if that has to do with cost, if it has to do with safety perceptions, um, I, you know, I, I didn't really know. Um, and I thought that was, that to me was probably the most interesting, most surprising trend that I saw in the report. Like I said, I, I, I wasn't overly surprised by some of the larger, larger trends in the data. Um, but that, that did surprise me a little bit. So, um, so I thought that was really interesting. I think my favorite part of the report and James, you, you wrote a beautiful, beautiful report. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. It's very substantive. It's got lots of interesting insights and tidbits. Um, my favorite thing are the counselor spotlights, which I just thought were so interesting and insightful and exactly the kind of information that is valuable to really experienced university reps. Um, you know, I think that when you're new to the fields, and, you know, looking at things like open doors or, you know, our reports and, you know, ISC research, you know, all of these data, these really big data uh, pieces is, is new and exciting and interesting. I think when you've been doing it for a long time, certain things just sort of become common knowledge. Um, and so the anecdotal information, the qualitative information that was included in this report, I thought gave so much interesting context. And I loved that. Um, I loved hearing that. And I think, you know, it's why people love to go to conferences and talk to our colleagues across, you know, across the desk, as we say, um, because that kind of insight really can drive our understanding of data trends. Yeah. 
that's that. Thank you. That's so insightful. And thank you for the, the kind words about the report as well. And just to say to listeners, Jen is not a member of my PR team. I, I just, uh, <laughs> um, no, but I'm no. part of your fan club, James. <laughs> um, so, so I mean, can can I ask you a question then about because you, you obviously yeah you mentioned the the usefulness of the of the council spotlights and I think that's one of the things that with Bridgie we, we want to do more of. we want to sort of improve that dialogue between admissions teams and councillors because fundamentally you know um, both parties have information gaps that the other the other side can help to fill right um, absolutely but, but I, I guess at the moment in, you know because obviously you've, you've talked before about that you know you said that the theme at NASA was uncertainty and you talked about how yeah. there's still a lot of concern about what you know what's going to happen with with these seemingly successful yield rate so right what what's standing in the what's what's standing in the way at the moment of um, admissions teams in the u.s like having these deep relationships with counselors is it is it time is it resource is it um is it is it almost like no, not knowing what they don't know i mean what, what's what do you think is um if, if that kind of anecdotal information is is so in, sort of important how would you suggest that admissions teams can kind of like um can drive that really like make sure that more of it happens I think that's a really interesting question. I I don't know that there is a universal single answer to that. I do think that, and I know you and I have talked about this at length, but, um, you know, admissions reps in the U.S. tend to be fairly time poor. They wear a lot of hats. They're very busy. um, And as much as we enjoy and love um, connecting with our counselor, you know, colleagues, it can just be difficult to find time to have the kinds of meaningful conversations and exchanges that we want to. Um, I think that there are a lot of ways that universities try to do this in a more formal capacity. You know, a lot of universities host counselor fly-ins, although sometimes international counselors are not able to take advantage of those opportunities because they may not be able to, you know, pay the extra money to like fly a counselor from Asia as opposed to, you know, the state next door. <laughs> um, but things like counselor fly-ins or, um, you know, obviously attending conferences is pretty major way that we connect with, with our counselor colleagues. Um, but also in the U.S., we have this um, process, I guess you could call it, of what we call counselor calls. And that is another way that university reps try to connect with counselors. But a lot of times that depends on the institution itself. Um, you know, counselor calls would be, you know, when a counselor reaches out from, from a, a school that, you know, you have a good relationship with and they say, hey, I'd really love to sit down and talk to you about my students' decisions before your notifications are released. So we're giving, we give uh, school counselors a little bit of a preview, if you will, um, of what decisions might be coming their way um, for their students. And, you know, and this is not something that every university offers, but a lot of universities that have really strong relationships with certain schools will do this. Um, And it's an interesting part of the relationship building, but I don't know that new counselors in the field even know that's an option. You know, I think this is one of those things where someone who's been around for, you know, 20, 20 years in the international space or even in any school space will know that this is something that you can do. But I think a lot of new counselors to the field don't realize that's an option to request. So, um, yeah, so I think that we definitely do our best, but, uh, you know, like I said, there people are just busy. They wear a lot of hats. They're the recruiters, but they're also the admissions application reviewers. They are also, you know, doing 
field programs as well as on campus programs, you know, answering a ton of email all year, <laughs> um, you know, taking phone calls at really high volume times of year. So they're, they're just, they're busy folks. That's really interesting though, because what that makes me think is, and I say this obviously as someone who is not from the US and doesn't, and doesn't mm-hmm. obviously, as hasn't worked in the US higher education system, but I, I, obviously I've written a lot about it for mm-hmm. Bridge U as one I've written our council resources. And it's, it's so funny to me how some aspects of the US system are so standardized and so fixed in aspect, you know, the, we returned to the examples I used earlier, like the Common App, um, mm-hmm. the rules surrounding Common App essays, the, sure. um, the uh, you know, the deadlines, the, the deci- you know, the, the way that waitlisting and, and, and early decision and early action works and all that sort of stuff. But then I also had a friend who, a colleague of mine, who when she was training me on how to, on the US system when I, when I first started here, said used to, her, her favorite catchphrase was, it depends. Yes, um, so <laughs> and, and, and that sort of, and that kind of, but it's so strange how there's actually in the international space, it seems there's whole other pockets where nothing's standardized and actually sounds to me as though some of the things you've just mentioned should almost be like a matter of course in every institution across the US, but it's so funny because yeah, you're, you're right. The counselors, you know, some of them are in the report. They say, look, I, I need, I think it's the one in, I think it might be Jacob who's uh, based in Morocco. I think his interview, he said something like, Look, I just want to know what, what's happened with my kid's application. I, or I've got a follow-up mm-hmm. question. I need to call them up, but I just, I can't get through to the right person. Who do I speak to? Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, and it's, it's yeah, it's, it's that kind of um, mishmash between it being heavily standardized in some areas um, and not standardized at all in others. Actually, I can understand maybe why counselors, the, the, the uh, college counselors in, in international schools do experience that frustration. Absolutely. And it is, it, you're right. I mean, actually, that is something I used to, I used to say in every presentation <laughs> uh, yeah. was it depends, everything in admissions, it depends. Um, and it's true because part of it has to do again with bandwidth. You know, you have um, some admissions offices that are very large. They're very well resourced. They have a lot of staff to be able to handle these types of things, um, you know, or they may have a team of people who are supporting something like application review, which gives the actual admissions officers more time to be able to do things like counselor calls. But then you have other universities where you have a, and I myself worked at yeah, a couple of them where I was a one woman show. I mean, I did literally everything myself um, in terms of the recruitment, the application review, the communications with students answering questions, um, you know, and it becomes very difficult to find the time to do that in a way that's meaningful and, um, and accessible for people. So a lot of it really is how well resourced an admissions office is, um, you know, and, and how big their international application pool may be in relation to that. And so having worked in, obviously, because you, as you say, you've, you've worked in colleges where you've, you've been a one woman shop, but you've also worked in ones where you've obviously been part of a larger team. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I think now this, this is the time in which we're speaking as in early June would be a good, would be a good time to sort of ask this question anyway, but how, how given that we've kind of got budget season coming up again mm-hmm. soon, um, how would you suggest that given everything that's going on at the moment and given what you heard at NASA and obviously everything that's in the report, how would you suggest that, um, international admissions teams, have you got any strategies or advice for how they can make the case to, to, to like do more of this, um, really proactive stuff that we've been talking about, you know, or, or sometimes even to make the case for their, um, for the work that they do, because for, like, please forgive me if I've been misunderstanding you, but it also feels as though sometimes the international admissions teams struggle in certain institutions, not all of them, but in some of them to, um, m- you know, make the case 
when the grid for for their operations compared to their domestic counterparts is that is that fair yeah i mean i i yes <laughs> and some of that has to do with the institutional priorities um related to budget and related to um you know different kinds of enrollment targets and um and and so yes i i'd say that's definitely fair um one of the things I think, I guess, advice that I would give to somebody who's looking for, you know, their how to prioritize or how to, um, how to communicate to their leadership team about about the value of of breaking into new markets in particular, I think that there's a few tips I would give. Um, the first is to pick a few, <laughs> you know, don't try to do all of it. I mean, I know that, you know, when, when we were talking about the app report, you know, we're talking about data trends from schools that cover 138 countries. There is not a single admissions office that I know of that can hit 138 <laughs> countries in a yeah. year. I mean, that's crazy. So if you are thinking, okay, normally I do a week in China, I do two weeks in India. And right now I'm trying to figure out, you know, maybe the other three uh, priority locations for me to focus on. I think do, you know, a part of the report that you should, that you wrote and you shared, but also some of these other data sources, things like Open Doors, um, UNESCO, even the CIA fact book that has a lot of information about student, um, like student GDP, the GDPs and, and literacy rates and education and graduation rates in countries, things like that. Um, I think when you're doing your research, you know, really, Think about your own institution's presence, where you may have connections. You know, maybe you have faculty that go and abroad and research regularly, or they you have alumni that are really active from a specific country, or you know you have a study abroad organization um, or program that's really popular. You know, think about what your institutional resources are already. And then try to leverage those as you think about your priority list, because it gives you the opportunity to really maximize the resources you have available to you, even if they're low or small. Um, and so I say, you know, the best the best solution, I think, is to pick a few places instead of picking a lot of places and trying to spread yourself too thin, you know, pick two or three new locations to really focus on and write a strategy or a plan that covers a three-year trajectory. You know, one of the things that we say often, um, I guess one of the uh, sort of unspoken wisdoms of, of international admissions in general is that you really have to do something at least three years to see any results from it, um, and sometimes five, like three to five years. So whatever you are getting ready to embark on, you know, you need to be ready to to continue that for at least a couple of years, because it takes time to build your brand and to build your presence and to build your relationships in places where maybe you haven't had an active presence in the past. So that's a piece of advice is I would say, narrow your focus in, think about your institution's priorities and resources and, you know, and also the data trends and use those things together to, to really come up with your priority list. Um, so that would be that would be one thing that I would really um, emphasize as a piece of advice when you're thinking about diversifying diversifying your recruitment strategy. Right. Yeah. And um, I think as well that I think that's so interesting 
from the perspective again of just like how what's what's in this report right because again you, as you say there's there's no um there's no way you could reach 138 countries nor, yeah. nor by the way <laughs> would, would, would would we be encouraging anyone to do that um uh but um but i think that that's also because you know i think that's one of the things i always find interesting whenever i do these reports which is just the way that you, you actually have um I don't know if this might be us sort of like talking ourselves up a bit too much as a company here, but it's also interesting because, you know, I'm sure there's quite a lot of legacy reasons why you might go after a certain market and you go, well, you know, and it happens at any organization after you've, after you've got processes in place, people, you'll eventually have people saying, you know, well, we've, it's just the way we've always done it. But Absolutely. I think one of the interesting things that I always find is that, you know, we, we do have, um, um, you know, we, we see these now international schools popping up and we, you know, in the report, it's like, well, they're popping up in these new places. And by the way, that they're really keen to meet you and they're really keen to hear from you. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I think, I think that's for me, just, um, one way in which like, again, to, to, to give it a, a bit of a plug, but where, the way in which like, I think this, this latest like report, um, I, I like to think anyway, does inform some of the things you've just said. I mean, I'm assuming you would agree with that. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. It's a resource that can be used to help build a case. Right. Um, I think that you do, uh, you know, when you're presenting a case to your leadership team, I think it's important to have a lot of information together, you know, and so looking at like bridge use resources are really helpful when it comes to the international schools market. When I was, you know, wearing my admissions hat, I certainly looked to bridge use, you know, great white papers as a resource. Um, but, you know, there are lots of resources out there that help create a bigger picture as you're thinking about your priorities, um, you know, for the coming year. And I think that that information can really help push you in a certain direction. Um, I think it's important to maintain, you know, relationships in, in key markets for yourself, but I also think it's really important to invest in, you know, like I said, in diversifying. Um, and actually I did this myself when I was at Syracuse, um, you know, we started looking at Africa. Um, and, you know, it's one of the largest markets and untapped markets, I think, um, in the world, it's also one of the fastest growing in terms of college age students. Right. So, um, and in fact, a lot of, a lot of our, a lot of our historically, um, strong markets, places in Asia in particular, you know, they have an aging population and the number of college age students is shrinking. Um, whereas in Africa, it's actually probably the, has the largest growth potential, um, for college age students. So, you know, I thought a lot about that region, um, and you know, what my approach was and, you know, and, and honestly, like at first when I went, I was doing a recruitment tour where we did go to, you know, eight to 10 countries, um, but I started to realize after returning, um, you know, year on year, because we had made a commitment, like I said, you need to go at least three years, if not five, <laughs> to start to see real results. And so we had made a commitment when I started traveling there. Um, we knew we would want to repeat, you know, our visits for at least the next few years after that. And, um, you know, what I really found to be true as I started repeating my visits there was that it you know, it, it helped me focus, like where were we were starting to really see traction? You know, we went, I went from going to eight to 10 countries to going to like three or four. And those were the places that I kept returning to because that was where we were getting traction. And so it really helped me kind of hone in on, on the key places from, for our institution, um, you know, that would, that were really strong markets for us in that region. So I think that's part of what it takes. You know, you, again, you, you sort of learn as you go, you tweak as you go, but it's, it is important to give the expectation to your leadership team that 
you know, you may be able to see results very quickly in a domestic market, but internationally it does take longer and you have to be willing to put the resources in for at least a few years in a row. And um, how do you, how do you kind of, this, this is, by the way, really just fascinating to someone who obviously has, has again, as you know, this kind of has more of an external perspective to, to the US system. Sure. How do you balance that sort of um, trade-off between, because as you say, you want a market um, to build traction. Of course you do, because of, of course, otherwise what's the point of having that kind of like, you know, the, the long-term strategy, but, but how do you, how do you manage that trade-off? Because of ultimately how you, you also want to make sure presumably that you don't get too stuck in one market and you're not taking your eye off, you know, other ones as well. Like for example, you know, oh, yeah. uh, so, so look, how, how, how do you sort of manage that trade-off, especially again, as we come back to that thing of doing it with like limited resources? So I think it's an interesting question. I would personally say that a lot of it had to do with piggybacking off of other activities we would do regularly. So like, for instance, what I, when I say that, I mean, um, you know, if you're really keen to explore a new market, let's say, let's take South, a- South Asia as an example. Um, if you know that you're going to be going to India once or twice a year, every year, which, you know, I did for a long time, um, you know, what are the other places in the region that you can leverage to try to build, you know, maybe a secondary growth market for yourself? You know, so like if you're in India, it's very easy to go to, you know, a place like Bangladesh or Sri Lanka or Pakistan or, you know, even Singapore, right? Um, So if you're looking at, you know, if you're looking at ways to, be cost effective as you're thinking about strategies and building new markets, you know, think about the places that surround your primary markets where you know you're going to be investing time and money every year. Um, and then maybe try to hit one or two new ones, um, you know, in conjunction to that, because you will absolutely save money. It costs a lot of money to do a trip to a place like India. But if you are wanting to just add a two days in another market, you know, that is actually fairly cost effective. Um, so thinking about, you know, your primary markets, where you're going to be traveling, um, you know, where you have to travel because you're maintaining your relationships and your, um, you know, you want to be visible in the schools that have been very loyal to you over the years. Um, but what are the places surrounding that, that you can maybe put your toe in the water, so to speak, um, and, and try something new. Um, and so I think that from my, from my experience, that would be the piece of advice I would say in terms of making your budget go a little further is to really leverage the current travel that you're already doing. And, um, you know, like I said, dip your toe in the water in in surrounding areas, but along that note, you know, separately, I know that we talked a lot this spring about, you know, hybrid recruitment strategies. You know, if you really also want to try to reach places that, you know, you can't travel to, you know, offer them a virtual session or do a, uh, a workshop, a topical workshop on something like the Common App essay, you know, for your schools in a country that you may not get to travel to, or even a region you won't get to travel to. And just try that too, because I think it doesn't hurt. And it's only a few hours of your time and it's free, um, you know. And so if you also wanted to to try to get to places that you can't physically travel to, then that's another option. Yeah. And, and just to add to that as well, this, um, I think, you know, cause obviously we've the next conference we've got coming up on the horizon that, that probably everyone who's listened to this will have on their, in their diaries is international ACAC. And, Absolutely. you know, um, I think one of the things that comes out is, is if, is if you are worried about, um, 
you know, time, resources, budget. The other thing to bear in mind is that you, you have whole counselor networks in these areas. And if you Absolutely. are willing to sort of plug yourself into those and willing to sort of like open up those collaborative relationships with those counselors, they will be so, you know, just be overjoyed to, in most cases to, to, to meet with you, to learn more about you, to, to sort of like, and really like, you know, to hear those kind of, um, as you say, th- that those value-driven pieces like that Common App essay sort of workshop you gave as an example. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's really, that's really good. And I think that kind of like, hopefully like maps onto that thing you were just talking about with the um understanding the relationships in your primary market and then how you can then um make an impact in your secondary market as well exactly exactly um i said i did say we would talk about you did mention after a little bit at the beginning but i said i just thought mm-hmm. to kind of like bring, bring the bring the interview to kind of close we could just circle back and, and you could so so yeah. what you see obviously you were there last week um you, yeah. you talked a little bit about um you said that there were some sort of themes coming out of it, but, but just more specifically, like, yeah, did, was was there anything else that was it any other key takeaways for you? Or any just just generally any like great conversations you've had or people you met with? Any anything that really sort of stayed with you? Well, there were two things that that um, from on a personal note <laughs> that I took away from my experience at NASA. Um, first was that people are so ready to reconnect with each other. Um, you know, every person that I saw, it was like, oh, you're such a sight for sore eyes and, you know, (laughs) like lots of hugs and lots of, lots of reminiscing. Um, there was a lot of that. And I think people were so excited and eager to reconnect. But the flip side of that was that I was exhausted (laughs) every day. And I was like, God, we're so out of practice, (laughs) um, you know, of like being on and, and being in person and having a presence, you know, and, um, and it's funny because I, you know, I came out of NASA and I thought, God, how did I do this for weeks at a time Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. before, before COVID? And I mean, and I did, right. I would travel for six to eight weeks at a time and I would be on almost every day, you know, doing school visits or doing presentations on the weekends or hosting alumni dinners or, you know, hosting counselors or whatever. And I, and so, you know, doing that at NASA for just four days, I was like, God, I am so tired. So it's so interesting to me. It's like a muscle, right? Like we're all kind of out of practice and we have to exercise it again. So that's something I'm going to definitely um, be ready for at International ACAC. Yeah, that's that's good. I mean, no, I think I feel the same. It's just, I, just, I think it's um, just, just a every time we just go back to work socials at this company, I'm just like, oh God, I forgot what you look like. It's just, it's just yeah, it's, <laughs> exactly. It's, um, um, well, anyway, which Jen, this has been absolutely fantastic. Like, um, yeah. and again, you know, I, I always think the best interviews are where I'm like actually learning something as I'm interviewing someone. And this has definitely been one of those times. So thank you so much mm-hmm. for taking the time out of your very busy enrollment services department to, um, <laughs> to talk to me. So, um, but yeah, I've, I've, I've enjoyed it a lot. Good. Well, it's my pleasure as always to speak with you, James. Like, like I said, I'm a big fan of your your work. Um, I think you you write beautiful content and really interesting content. And um, and I'm always happy to connect with you. So thanks again for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, th- thank you. And and I think I'd love to have you back on as, as you know, as we do more content to interview you again and also just to hear more about what, what's going on obviously in your in your new department. Um just a reminder to anyone who's listening to this, you can of course download um the US report that we've been talking about in this interview at www.universities.bridgeu.com forward slash blog forward slash resources. Um, it's also available to download on any of the podcast pages um, 
for the for this podcast for the interviews that I've been doing. So um, yeah, if if you're interested and you haven't read it yet, please do. Um, as Jen and I have been saying, um, we're we're both really excited by it, um, and we hope you are as well. Um, I've been interviewing Jen Matthews, and yeah, Jen, thanks again. Thank you, James.